Establish your why and chase it relentlessly. When you know why you're doing something and you have your core values and mission in place, do not let anything stop you. It's time to just keep breaking through those walls and those walls will absolutely come down. Welcome to The Glorious Professionals, episode 16. I'm Jason, here with Rich. Our guest today is Will Hinkson, a former reconnaissance Marine, current GORUCK cadre who spent his 20s in the special operations community. A lot of fun places like Fallujah, Iraq. And then he spent his 30s starting and running several successful businesses. He's the current creator of Scale Through Impact, a leadership consulting company and a dive team member at Force Blue, a nonprofit which unites the community of special operations veterans with the world of marine conservation. Will, thanks for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Jason and Rich. Cool. So since we're, we're able to kind of look at each other, right? And this is just a podcast. I just want to set the scene briefly, right? We, Rich and I, to our rear, we have big, giant American flag. And Will, to his rear, has a big, giant picture of a lion, right? I mean, and, and first thing I say to him is, man, that's an awesome lion. And, you know, first he's like, well, if I can't have a big ass American flag, this is what you're supposed to have. And so that was the first 10 minutes of our, of our chit chat, so to say, before we joined on. It's, uh, it's, it's good to, to chat with you here. Let's get going on the Marine Corps and what led you to that sort of service. I mean, you have so many other options, right? You have the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, you have so many great options. Why would you settle for something like the, the United States Marine Corps? Yeah, great question, Jason. The reason why <laughs> I went with the best service. Uh, <laughs> no, in, uh, you know, all joking aside, uh, I came into the Marine Corps in 2003, right? 9-11 had happened. Everything had kicked off there. You know, as you're looking at settling in, what branch are you going in? I knew it was athletic. Um, I knew I liked pushing myself physically. If I'm real honest about it, looking back, having a little bit of experience in marketing now, it was the commercial where the dude slayed the dragon. That 100% <laughs> was the reason in my head, looking back as a teenager, where I'm like, that's badass. I'm going to go do that. And I remember visiting a couple of recruiters, and there was only one recruiter that was like, what can you do? And let's see what kind of physical challenge uh, you have. And that was the Marine Corps. So I was sold. That, that's cool. I, it is such a constant theme on this show, including me and Rich, where commercials and movies and all of that stuff was pivotal in our choice of, of where we wanted to go. Fun fact is I, I tried to be a, an officer in the Marine Corps for a couple of years and the line was just out the door post 9-11. And, you know, yeah. Eventually the army was like, Hey, you can join special forces. I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. So, you know, paths lead as they're supposed to lead slaying dragons. Sounds fun. What was, what was there a component to your life that you wanted to serve or what was the reaction? Was it nine 11? Nine 11 was definitely probably the, the major contributing factor there. I think when I look back on it um, and I'll back up a little bit. So I don't really come from a family of service. Uh, my mom is basically a hippie. My dad is uh, probably one of the most unique individuals I've ever met in my life. Uh, at best, politically leaning, he could be called a libertarian. He's a stonemason, so I grew up doing that with him. Uh, but he also has a photographic memory, and he would read like quantum mechanics, quantum physics books growing up. So I'll never forget this, right? Like I was a pretty decent swimmer back in high school, uh, and I had gotten offered a scholarship and gotten accepted to college and all that. And I had made the decision without telling my parents, that's not for me. I, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind there. It's post 9-11. I felt called to serve. Like I said, I ended up at the Marine Corps. But I remember telling my father this. Uh, and my father, his response, his exact response was, you're going to be cannon fodder. This is the worst decision you've ever made. What are you thinking? Uh, and it was basically iterations of that up until the day that I left. And the day that I left, he was the most supportive human being uh, I could have possibly asked for. So it was kind of this weird uh, process as this 18-year-old leading up to the months while I'm like hanging out, waiting to go to boot camp. Was that like his way of testing whether you really wanted to do this or was that just him? Oh, no, he was serious. 
that, that's just my dad. This is the way my dad taught, right? My, my dad is an amazing human being. He adopted me. Uh, my mom was a single mom for the first couple of years of my life. Uh, but he was very serious about that leading up to me going into the military. What did that do for your psyche? I think in my head, it probably put, it put a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, if I'm honest, looking back on it. And I think it was one of those things where it was like, I, no matter what, I have to be successful at this. I'm not coming back with anything other than being a success. And I didn't even really know what that looked like, right? It was probably that chip on my shoulder that led me to push as hard as I did in those early years. We're all kind of trying to, to, to live up to our father's expectations of us in, in some way, whatever we choose, right? 100%. There's always that in, in your life. And I think, that's, I think that's a positive thing. And then you get, to, you get to basic training. And I mean, your drill sergeant is a father figure. It, whether you want him to be or not, I mean, he's teaching you how to stay alive. Totally. And so walk, walk us through what it's like becoming a Marine. And then, you know, it's not just a Marine in a time of peace. This is the invasion. W what month did you enlist in, in 2003? Uh, so that would have been September of 2003. <laughs> All right. So I enlisted in October of 2003, by the way. So, you know, the, the invasion into Iraq was March of 03. I mean, that's where the Marines are. You know, you're going yeah. and you're, I mean, that, that's your choice. That's your decision. So what was that process like leading you eventually over to, to that garden spot? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're assimilating in the beginning, right? Like that's what boot camp ultimately is, is you're figuring out how to interact with a bunch of people all throughout the country, different traditions, different upbringings, different values, all of that kind of distilling the bullshit, right? It's like a sifter that just kind of keeps sifting out like what matters, what doesn't, and what do you actually need? What do, don't you need? What's some of the stuff that you thought that you needed that's probably just nonsense? Uh, that was boot camp, man. That was like just interacting with folks, figuring out how to do whatever ridiculous task, because most of them are ridiculous and hilarious looking back that whatever drill instructors coming up with at the time. Yep. Got it. We've all seen Full Metal Jacket, man. <laughs> uh, and you guys have stripes right that's that's uh, <laughs> yeah 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 it's just like that yeah that's that's what i figured bill murray usually nails it <laughs> but that was that then you go through school of infantry training i mean you're getting hands on you know cool weapons you've only ever seen in movies and stuff like that you think you're a ninja you know nothing you're an idiot you're basically one step away from not killing yourself and your friends next to you because they're on you at every second uh, and then for me, uh, in school of infantry, because the op tempo was so high, previous to that, you had to have at least one deployment, usually a couple of deployments to be eligible to even screen for recon. Um, but because the op tempo was so high and they needed people, they made the decision, we're going to open this up. If you have, I think it was a 285 PFT, uh, physical fitness test, get a certain uh, score on your ASVAP, which is like a general thinking score then you were eligible. And so that's what it was, is they basically said, hey, if you have these, you're eligible. Get your name on a list. If you want to try out, come talk to, you know, Corporal Schmuckatelli in the corner after you go through this brief. And you're like, that's me. I, because remember, right, I had this kind of chip on my shoulder and I was like, oh, there's something I can do that's higher, right? And I had this kind of thing where it's like, I'm not going to come back as a failure. Like, of course, I'm going to go do that. Right. So I ended up doing that and then, you know, passing that. And then that was my entrance into uh, what the recon community loves to describe as uh, your life, which consists of three things, which is pain, misery and suffering. OK, so take it up a notch a little bit on the the idea of this is a time of war. And, and look, the Marine Corps in the, in the military as a whole does an excellent job of, of preparing us for war. There's still the voice inside your head you know, you're going to war. hundred percent. I mean, you know, I, I chatted with Rich a, a while back and he was like, yeah, you know, there, there's not a lot of conversations inside the team room about philosophizing about stuff unless it's five, five, six or seven, six, two or, or stuff like that. That that's about the extent of the philosophizing about that, but you have the voices inside your own head. And what is that like for you at, in, in 2003, 2004? Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, call it my competitive nature, the competitive nature of everybody that's around you, but you're rarely, maybe you're the best at one thing, but probably not for very long. 
in your group. There's probably somebody else that's going to come in that's better. So what I remember specifically is just this ultra level of competition. I don't ever remember thinking back. It was a little bit different, probably in the flight over to my first combat deployment, but I don't ever really remember thinking about me necessarily. Like I was thinking about my performance in relation to the guys around me. That was more of the conversation that I had in my head. Am I going to be match, be able to match up with some of these, some of these guys already had two deployments, which at the time, right? Like none of us had the, you know, seven, nine, 12 deployments. A lot of us had later two deployments. I mean, you were senior, you were, you were a God, you know, my first team, one of my guys was one of my instructors at ARS, right? He is one of the guys that had trained me. Adva- advanced Re- recon school, right? Uh, amphibious reconnaissance school. Yeah. So amphibious reconnaissance school. Got it. Yeah. So I, I, you know, for everybody listening, I, I hate this comparison, but I'll make it because everybody will know what it is. It's our version of buds. Um, so it's, it's where a lot of guys get weeded out and you push yourself. And if you can make it through, um, you get to be a new guy who doesn't know anything when you show up at the unit is basically what it means. Um, but I remember thinking this the whole time and I'm looking at everybody just, I, it was incredibly stacked. I was unbelievably fortunate. And this has been a theme throughout my career uh, to stand on the shoulders of giants. And I didn't realize the caliber of humans that I was standing next to and comparing myself to. But because of that, it sharpened me so much. The only question I really had in my head was, am I going to be able to produce the way these guys produce? Can I hold the standard here? And that was the question that was running through my mind the entire time. And so you're on the plane flight for real and, and you show up and it's, it's hot and all that stuff. And what, what, what happened? Yeah. So I remember, you know, you fly in, you fly in typically to a little air base, a pretty big air base called TQ. Um, and then from there, you end up going out and headed wherever you're at in this particular case, uh, out to Fluja. So I, I didn't really know what to think. If I'm really honest about it, I was probably more excited than anything. And I know that could probably be portrayed wrong, but I, I feel like it's uh, my wife's in medicine and she trained for years and years. What do you ultimately want to do when you're training that hard? You want to work. You want to see if this, like, let's put this shit to use. Let's see what comes out the other side. I think I'm ready, but I've never done it. And that's what, it was a very similar thing that went through my head. I think I'm ready. I want to push this and see what, what I'm capable of and what I can do for the guys around me. There's also damn near nothing worse than being around guys that have been in theater that have been on deployment that have been to war and you haven't, it, it exacerbates it <laughs> even more. Right. I mean, you've got this, you're a cherry. And so you, you, you have to prove yourself. It's, it's like athletics like that. You know, you're the freshman on the team and nobody cares what you did in middle school, man. Nobody cares. Yeah. And I think the chance, right? Like you train so hard for something, you know, every fiber of your being is honed in on that. I wasn't married. I didn't have, you know, let's call it sustainable relationships back then. Um, you know, minus having some fun nights out with the guys, like every fiber of my being is dialed into that. How do I become the best version of me that can be inside of this role? And, and that was, you know, 10 years of doing that stuff. It, it sharpens you. But that first one is just like, let's see what comes out the other side. So what happened on that first deployment or what was the evolution? It was busy. Uh, it was working, right? So Fallujah uh, is uh, a place where we got to do a lot of work. Um, all of the training mattered. All of the critical thinking mattered. All of the pushing yourself physically. Uh, it was a summer deployment for us. It was seven months. You were sitting on a rooftop. I'll remember this specifically. So uh, the way the rooftops, as you guys know, inside Iraq work is it's not like it's a pitched roof and then you lay tar paper and shingles and all that stuff. Essentially, they just throw a whole shitload of tar on top, right? And then it hardens. And then that's what waterproofs so they don't have anything leaking in, in theory, right? They usually do. But I remember this specifically, right? We were on top of a rooftop. You know, we knew we were there. Nobody else knew we were there. We were looking at some humans. Uh, and I, <laughs> I remember that had, it was like 140 degrees. We bust out our kestrel on that roof, on that tar, it was 140 degrees. Just hating life, right? And I, I remember uh, my shadow had solidified that tar. So it brought it down lower than 140 because it had turned kind of liquid. 
and I went to go push off that because, you know, my shift was done or whatever. And uh, I was stuck to that riff. I was 100% stuck to that riff. And I remember really specifically thinking, okay, let me work through this in my head. I actively chose to do this. I have friends in college that are going to parties with girls and I'm melted to a roof. It's chaos, man. It's total chaos. You don't know how to filter through that. It's like a 19 year old, 20 year old, whatever it was. Like you're just figuring shit out. I remember thinking like, this is weird. And our, like we did our job really well, but I just remember like it didn't reconcile. And for years, that was one of those things that was like, I could have probably gone to college. Like I had a scholarship. Like I probably should, I could have just gone to college and been like flirting with girls and like doing homework and getting bees and, and swimming or whatever. So, so what's the value then? Like, I know you don't actually wish you had not been there. And, and so uh, it's, it's not a disconnect. Like, why is it that that is so rewarding? Yeah. So I think years later, looking back on it, I, I've thought through this a lot. I think in the time when you're pushed past your limits, just like you are in anything physical or any point, you know, we've got the DFQ shirts at GoRuck, of course, right? Don't fucking quit. The idea that that doesn't ever cross your mind is a fantasy. The idea that somebody's like, nope, I never, ever considered quitting. I'm going to call bullshit, right? Maybe your brain works differently than everybody else I've ever met, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call bullshit. I think you think it through, and this is where maturity comes in, right? The value of that is actually learning how to go, this isn't an awesome circumstance. It's certainly not a comfortable circumstance, but it's one I'm going to excel in. And let me engage with this experience instead of trying to fantasize that I'm somewhere else. And I think that in my mind, a lot of times is what separated kind of, you know, being young or immature inside of that community from having maturity and understanding how to lean in and what that looks like. Cause you're not trying to be somewhere else leaning in when it sucks, embracing that and figuring the way through as opposed to just fantasizing about being somewhere else. Uh, and it was probably one of the, the biggest turning points for me in maturity in that career. I think you're absolutely right that everybody gets to that point. Everybody has the fantasy. What the fuck am I doing here? And the key is you've taken yourself to a personal limit and then you push through that limit and find a new limit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, it's been one of the biggest things that I've been able, I, I mean, so many incredible lessons. Uh, but that's been one of the biggest ones for me is when that comes, am I shying away from it and trying to fantasize I'm somewhere else? Or am I looking at a way through it, around it, changing the rules to figure out how this makes sense? So, so give us an example. How do you learn those lessons in, in combat? For, for people who haven't been, that don't know what 140 degrees feels like. That, I mean, 140 degrees, you know, it's, you've got water and the water's damn near boiling right? Inside your, your, your little cargo pocket or whatever. And it sucks. You can just, it's, it's awkward. You can feel it. I mean, your, your equipment, you just always got that glaze of sweat on you. And then there's, you know, the dirt and the dust and it's just, it's, it's objectively speaking, it's miserable right now when you're stuck to a rooftop, it's even more miserable. It's noticeably miserable because nobody wants to hear the story about I was in Iraq and I got some dirt on me. Right. It's, it's sort of everyone that was there, you got dirt on you. Right. It's, it's the, the tarp, the, the sticking to rooftops and, and such that is extra miserable. The, the leadership stuff and, and how to kind of control yourself in times of adversity, chaos, how to persevere through when it's really difficult for someone who hasn't been, how, do, how does that work? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a high level version and then I'll give you a, a detailed version. How do you end up doing that? I, I don't think you logic your way. I, I couldn't for me. And maybe it's just inherent in that, you know, we're all typically so young starting out on our first couple of deployments. I think you need a couple of deployments. I think you need to experience whatever's going to happen in that environment, kind of see what comes through. It's only in hindsight that I think you're able to grow through that. Right. And I think that's the value of training ahead of time. You can get enough of that. But I look at that and it's like, did I learn all that stuff while I was there? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I survived that first deployment and I did well there. But I, more than that, 
I retrospectively reflected on it once I got back and learned more. And then I went back again and again and again and again. Uh, and with every subsequent combat deployment, what I learned to do was take myself a little bit out of the equation. My feelings don't really matter and I can't trust them. My feelings in any circumstance, can't trust those, right? It could be hot. I could have some sort of injury that's bugging me. I could be dehydrated, miserable. What you can trust is what principles did I apply to this that actually brought me through? A specific example of this, um, let's venture out of the combat zone realm for a second. I leave at the very end of my contracting career, I was uh, basically overseas, but I was helping run a nonprofit CrossFit affiliate. I'm on the side with a friend of mine. Uh, and then I realized like, I kind of enjoy this a little bit more than the actual work that I'm doing right now. And they're paying me a whole lot of money, but I'm just not that into it. You're in Kabul, right? Yeah. So at the time I was at the embassy in Kabul in Afghanistan. So it had grown from like four of us <laughs> that were working out. I would do my workout usually at like 4 a.m. I would leave my safe house, go over to the embassy. I would work out typically four to five. I'd train a small group of CrossFitters because I had, you know, fortunately trained under some great people and I was very competitive back then in the CrossFit scene and went through a bunch of certifications and all that stuff. And these people looked like their shoulders were about to pop off their arms. And I was like, I don't want to be that guy, but I also don't want to not mention something if it helps them and they're open to it. So I mentioned something one morning and they're all like, uh, what do you know about this? And I was like, uh, you know, I've, I've done this a little bit and I compete. They're like, cool. Do you want to join us? I was like, you know, I got to train a little bit earlier, but I could probably coach you guys for like 30 minutes, set you guys on some technique, get you started. And then I got to roll out and, and they went for it. But this program ended up expanding. Right. And this is where establishing your why, like you mentioned in the beginning, I think is so important. I was looking for at the end of my career, I was looking for what is the positive influence in what I'm doing, right? What is not that I didn't have a lot of positive influence in, in what we had done, but I wanted to see it reflected a little bit more in people as opposed to a little bit more broadly uh, in what we're doing as a country or in a theater. Does that make sense? Yeah. So was, was that almost a, not a soft landing, but transitions are, are tough and you, you've been physical your whole life. You know, you put that to the test and then you kind of start and build a business around that. It's almost you play to your strengths and then you probably had to hustle a little bit on the business side. A lot. And that's where the principles came in, right? We've got a principle. Uh, it's, you know, in every service with a slightly different acronym. SMEAC, right? Situation, mission, execution, admin, logistics, command and signal. It's basically how you break down any mission, as you guys well know. I don't know. We don't have SMEAC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, stuff like that. All right, we're, we're heading out. It's mission planning stuff, right? So in my head, I was like, all right, I know nothing about business. It's like, all right, cool. So I'm going to get my business degree. So I, I was able to fit in school while I was still over there. You know, nothing crazy. Uh, no MBA, but just finished up bachelor's. And then I was like, all right, cool. So I've got I don't know how much of that is applicable, but I at least know accounting principles right now, which to this day is probably the only thing I still use in growing businesses. And I was like, all right, I, I've got a plan. It's time to leave. So I transitioned out of the role that I was playing at the time. So is it fair, you know, you're, you're going through a transition. You probably saved up a couple nickels to rub together at this point. I mean, high op tempo gone a lot. Yes. Right. You can only spend so much at the PX, whatever base in, in Iraq or Kabul or wherever you are. So you've got a little bit, little bit of a safety net to, to fall back on. 100%. And yet, you know, you're going through a transition. What was that like? I've said in, in the past, there's three things that everyone should do that's going through a transition. The first is use your post 9-11 GI Bill right? Go back to school, buy yourself some time, which the time is, is arguably more valuable than the education. I, I took accounting principles too. I don't remember a damn thing. I, I basically did whatever I could to get through that class. And anyway, right. That's, that's for another day. The, the second was get a dog, which I know you also did. Right. Yep. Uh, and, and then the third was just work really hard. I think that's spot on, man. I, uh, yeah. So when I look at transition, I, I, there's no way to shortcut that process for any of us. I've got friends that have done four years and they typically have the same uh, time period as friends that have done 28 years. Like it, it looks about the same for most of us. 
process is a little bit different. Experiences are a little bit different. That's for sure. But I think anybody that experiences, you know, heavy combat, you, you just look at the world a little bit differently. And now you're coming into what feels very familiar, but it's unfamiliar at the same time. And I think for all of us, we're trying to reconcile that a little bit or figure out where do I fit? Do I fit? And I couldn't agree with you more, man. I, of course, love dogs. I've always loved dogs. But I think working hard with a purpose and a mission, not just endlessly grinding yourself to the bone just because, it's the way forward. It's the way forward for all of us. So what was the sort of low point of your transition? Oh, it hit me with it. Um, at one stage in there, I'd gotten married um, and then had gotten divorced. So again, this... Everyone needs a starter marriage. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I was running the gym. We had grown. We were doing pretty good or what I thought was pretty good at the time. We, we grew uh, a lot more later once I figured out uh, how to be a better business owner. But I, I had no personal life. None. Like everybody I hung out with was people at the gym, which was okay. They were great human beings, like fantastic human beings. But, you know, in the same vein, like you're the leader there. Like that goes to a certain level, but not past. So you don't ever really feel like you can kind of truly be yourself in that kind of environment. You know, there were certain, certainly circumstances where I did. And I, I'm not saying I held back or changed, but you know, it goes to a certain level and you're aware that like you're the leader of this community. So going through the divorce and I basically at the time was just like, you know, I, I better, worse and different. Money has never been a primary driver for me ever. It's just not right. I care about experiences. I care about people. I care about purpose and I care about what I'm doing and, and the thought behind it. So I basically kind of just gave all the money away um, and was like, I just want the business. And that was fine with me. But I ended up sleeping in my office. Uh, I was there all the time. There was really no, you know, exit out of that. And I remember uh, one of my absolute best friends was driving by one day and he was a volunteer coach. He's got, he's the best in the industry of what he does for aviation. Uh, we, we'd become super close friends, another Marine, you know, generations before me. Uh, and he drives by one night at like 11 and he knocks on the door. Right. He knocks on the door and I'm like, somebody's breaking into the gym. So, you know, I'm, I'm responding to that. And Justin opens up the door and he, he's got a light on. He's like, Hey man, it's me. It's Justin. I'm like, Oh, Hey dude, what's going on? Still kind of like a little amped up, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he comes in, he's like, Hey, I saw the lights on and I've seen the light on for the last few days. He's like, are you living here? He's like, uh, yeah, I am living here. He's like, where do you go during the day and aren't, isn't the first class, like doors are basically open at 530 and you're not shutting down until, you know, essentially 930. What are you doing in between? I'm like, well, I've got a string of coffee shops I go to, uh, a couple different grocery stores where I'll pick up food and kind of just eat in their little cafe there. It's like, dude, just come live with me. So I ended up uh, moving in with him and I basically slept on a mattress in the corner uh, of his bedroom when his son was there. His son was 17, 18 at the time. <laughs> and then when his son wasn't there, I would sleep in his bed. And it was figuring out the way through on that, man. Like every, it was another thing where like, uh, you know, ego was just rocked to the core, stripped, sifted through like what matters, what doesn't and kind of building back up. But as interesting as those times were, I wouldn't really change it because it sifted down who I am, what matters, what do I believe in, what don't I? And that's been the continuous theme throughout my career. So think about that moment where he's asking you, what are you doing here? I mean, that's, it's kind of the weird part is, is that the conditions that you had in that gym, that would be a palace in Iraq. Oh, thousand you know? percent. Man. I mean, that, that's, that's better living conditions than any Marine has ever had in Iraq, right? <laughs> and it, it's sort Arguably of- better living than they even have in the States. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so, and yet that's the transition part that'll get you. It'll sneak up on you real fast like that, where you're kind of comfortable with that and, and you can fall back on it really quickly, right? Like, oh, I don't need anything. I'll just sleep at the gym. You know how much rent I'll save? You know, I don't have to go look for a place. I don't have to, I got my system down and everything, right? Like this is, this is easy. 
other stuff might be hard, but I can control this. This is easy. And, and yet you, you kind of have to keep that to yourself a little bit. It's, it's like you're ashamed. Yeah. It was one of those things. I, yeah, I agree with you. I, uh, I remember looking at it and I was like, I probably shouldn't tell people this like objectively, intellectually, I know how this looks. I don't really care that I'm doing this, but intellectually, I actually understand how this looks. So I probably shouldn't broadcast this that far and wide. Well, you almost look like what the perception is of the broken veteran. It's like, that's the hard part is you're wrestling with that. You're, I mean, I, you know, I have a similar ish story and it's, it's just, you're, I was really sensitive to the idea that I didn't want to be that guy. And yet from my vantage point, your story sleeping at your gym that you, that you own and you're, you're kind of broke. I mean, that's smart, right? I mean, this is what people do. It's, it's like, it's smart to just go back to the basics. And yet it, it really messes with your mind. Yeah. And to your point, like the idea of looking like that broken veteran, it's one of the narratives, um, you know, I'll probably hop on a soapbox and scream about it until it changes. Uh, Bring it. I, w- one of the things that bugs me probably the most about the perception of veterans, especially combat veterans, is that like we're kind of these broken souls that are barely hanging on and we're teetering by a thread. Uh, and, and I just think it's bullshit, right? Like in my mind, we're some of the most prepared, adaptable leaders uh, that need to transition into leading as citizens because we have the capability We've got the capacity, we've got the experience, and it's getting through that transition piece to becoming that really solid citizen and being able to lead in whatever venue you choose to lead in. And it looks different for everybody. But the narrative of like, we, we need to have awareness around 22 a day, but at the same point, we also need to have awareness around people that are successfully transitioning so we can have a focus on what that model looks like versus let's just not have guys and girls kill themselves. Let's have them or not kill themselves. Let's have them transition well and become leaders. So I think part of, part of it is it's, it's hard because people are not as willing to share their vulnerabilities, right? I mean, yeah, I went to combat. I got lots of leadership lessons from, from combat. I mean, war made me a better person, period, the end. I will take that statement with me until the day I die. I'm grateful that I got the opportunity. I mean, call anything that sounds really weird as it relates to war. Like I'm not glad that 9-11 happened, but I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to serve with the people that I served with. Yeah. And yet all of those lessons that I learned came with a price. They came with a price tag. And, and some of them are inability to relate. So how do we share what our scars are while we're pushing forward? Number one, I think, I think there's a lot of people that have those scars. I don't think it's exclusive to us. I think our experiences are our pressure chamber of that stuff. And I do think it does have a price and it sticks with you. How it sticks with you over time, I think is a little bit different for everybody. How you process through that is a little bit different for everybody. But the way I look at this is like, the emotional stuff, that's the stuff that ends up holding most of us back, right? That's the stuff that ends up closing us off and then saying, hey, we're different. In terms of like, how do you end up sharing that and sharing those scars without coming across as that broken human that's teetering on a thread? I think it's, it's talking about lessons learned. I don't think it's a different model than anything we've done in the past. Lessons learned, hey, I, I was legitimately struggling with this. And for some reason this type of commercial would come on and I'm like fighting back tears after nine combat deployments. That doesn't make sense to me. And I wouldn't tell anybody. Like, like what commercial? Uh, It was dumb, dude. It was, uh, it was like a a dog food commercial. Right. And I had my dog and I had like this affinity for my dog. And I, I remember specifically, like I'm sitting there on the couch with, you know, at the time it was my girlfriend. Now it's my wife. And like this dog food commercial came on right over whatever. We must've had Hulu with the ad subscription because we were seeing it. But, uh, and I remember I'm like weirdly emotional about it. I'm like, don't show it. Right. Like that, that was my initial reaction. Like, don't show it. 
And then my second reaction is like, what the hell is going on that I'm getting emotional about this? What is that? Because I don't really care. It's not like my dog had, you know, passed away or my dog's like sitting there on the couch next to me. And, you know, those scars, I, I think what happens, right? If we don't talk about those, if we don't end up bringing those up, I don't think it has to be super public. I, I think it can be. I know it's five years ago, the fact that I'm even talking about this right now would have never happened. I would have perceived it as weakness and just not something I'm going to do. Um, but it was, you know, kind of opening myself up to, you know, where's that coming from, right? What is, what does that actually look like? It doesn't make sense. And anytime it doesn't make sense, I'm like, what makes, what could make sense about this, right? If this doesn't make sense to me, if it doesn't, it's not even remotely close to logical, what would make sense? It's like, I probably got some shit that I haven't worked through. And I probably can't do it by moving a barbell faster or moving a heavier barbell uh, or, or doing whatever, you know, stupid physical trade or riding my motorcycle faster and weaving between cars. Like there's probably something I'm missing here. Uh, and it's putting in that work to kind of figure out, you know, what is that? What is that thing that makes me tick that I've got some sort of experience before that's not matching up? Like it's not matching up with who I actually am. And I'm fighting myself on that. In my mind, it's always when you're fighting kind of your natural who you are is where you end up struggling. That's at least for me, that's been my experience over time. The physical side, I'm on board with your, your way of life, which is it's, it's an important kind of foundational thing, but it's not in isolation, right? I mean, I think most mental health solutions should start with physical health. Totally the idea of going to the therapist and sitting there and, and it's a, it's a, a quiet room with a waterfall in the background and they ask you how you're feeling. I'm like, I, I, I don't want to fucking be here. That's how I'm feeling. Right. I tried it twice, uh, separated by about a year in between that. And both times I just ended up walking out. And the reason was, I was like, this person isn't ready for what I'm about to bring. My experiences, I'm sure you guys know, this experiences lives on the fringes of life right? Like if we look at most of life's experiences occur in the middle, we inside of combat experiences, especially in special operations, like we live on those fringe experiences. In and for, oh, right? A hundred percent. That was what I was chasing forever. It's why I drove a motorcycle so fast and so dumb retrospectively for so many years. It's why we go and push ourselves, right? Is I, I wanted those experiences after I realized what those bring and kind of that, you know, you realize you enjoy it or you're decent at it. And you're like, let's keep going after this, man. That's why talk therapy didn't ever work for me. It's like, if I even try to explain it to this person, I don't really have a vocabulary. It doesn't even sound real unless I'm talking to guys that were there with me, right? Like how do I even possibly explain this to somebody else? And, and yet there you are crying at a dog commercial with your now wife. What did get you onto the next stage. Yeah. Uh, so for me personally, uh, it was connecting into the next mission for the right reasons. It was also slowing down, man. I was going so fast. It's probably, yeah, it probably is the biggest mistake I've ever made in business. It was growing for gross sake because I didn't want to slow down as a human. I wanted that fast pace. So I was pushing the growth so hard not because it was better for my customers, not because it was better for my employees, not because it was better for the actual business. I was pushing it because I wanted that pace of life. I had to slow down. Yeah. So shouldn't the world just keep up with you? Yeah. <laughs> the truth is we can't keep up with us, right? How many times have you got out there, done stuff, you're fast, you're feeling it, you're in there, you're in flow, you're, you're hammering down. And then like, sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's, 30 seconds. Sometimes it's three years later. You're like, holy shit, where am I? How did I get here? What do I even do right now? What did the fuller transition look like? Right. I mean, hearth and home type stuff. And, and what are you up to now in, in continuation of, of service? Yeah. So, uh, I sold the gym, uh, last year. I had moved out to Denver, Colorado with my wife. Uh, she had a fellowship out here and I was managing it remotely, but decided that I wasn't there in the day-to-day. -day. Didn't really have the same connection for me. Um, so just made the decision to sell and then started up uh, a company probably six months before I sold 
basically helping small business owners. It's what I know, it's who I am, but how do you I pass on lessons learned in order to grow your business, help your customers, and then lead your team? So your, your company is, is scaled through impact, right? And what are the most relevant leadership, whatever lessons you want to call them, that translated the best from your time in the Marine Corps and on all of these various deployments? Like, you know, so I walk into your shop and you, what's your elevator pitch, so to say? You kind of just heard it. I feel you need simple systems. Simple scales, complex doesn't. And everybody's trying to sell you something complex. And you have to just think through the process. Give me really simple stuff that you can do to market that'll take you under 60 minutes to build. And then you can either pass it off to your team to implement, or if you're super techie, you can put it into place. Helping your customers, you got to actually talk to these folks, figure out what they like about you, what they don't like about you, and what they're looking for that you don't have. It's kind of that simple, but there is a process to it. And then leading your team is not as complex as everybody makes it out to be. And I think most people misunderstand leadership. Usually it's being able to really clearly, concisely identify where you're going, how you're going to get there in a broad sense, and then empowering strong people in terms of people that are very competent to be able to come up with the how. And then you're just guiding that path along the way. Uh, and the way that I like to do that is through really specifically installing an outcome culture. It's not about going through process. It's about getting these outcomes. That's what we're looking for. So those are kind of interlocking to me, right? If you sort of say, if you make your system complex, then you can be a great leader, but you're fucked. Oh yeah. Plain and simple. And, and so you failed on one of the foundational things of KISS. Keep it simple, stupid, right? I mean, the, the first thing that came to mind, as you, as you said, you know, it's got to be simple, is what's on the front of a Claymore, Rich, right? Run towards enemy. I mean, it's written on the Claymore, right? You can feel it, too, if it's the middle of the night. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Braille, except it's not Braille. It's actual real letters. You can feel it, you know? Front towards enemy. Point this way, right? Now, if you make something really, really complex, you can be Abraham Lincoln, and you're still going to set yourself up for failure. It's that simple. Make it really simple. Leadership follows that. Put the right people in the right seats and then start to move towards, towards the vision. Yeah, and I think, you know, understanding where you actually want to go, understanding what it actually looks like to have a business that serves your customers, serves your employees, and serves you. With my first business, I was like, oh, I want to grow to X amount of square feet and have this many locations and all that. We had a giant place. We had 8,000 square feet. We had a lot of people on staff. You know, we had physical therapists in there, chiropractors, massage therapists, everything else, right? It looks cool. It was not that much fun to run. I missed the old 2,600 square foot space uh, with the one office where the air conditioning didn't really work. I never, ever once considered what's the business I wanted to run. I just said, let me keep growing my business. And that was a mistake because I ended up with a business that, you know, at the end, I still love my people. I still believed in the missions, but all I had was headaches. It was all I was dealing with. I was going from fire to fire. Um, I had an old mentor who uh, on his email signature line, he had this and, and it ended up being true for me. Two fires at a time. And that's about what I could deal with. If I'm dealing with two, uh, the next thing is going to have to wait. Let me put these out and then we'll move from there. And over time, that just, you're burnt out, man. It's, it's not fun. You're losing track of what's good about it. Like to be able to build a business that is actually the life you want to live. I wish I would have been able to do that without uh, experiencing it. But uh, as all Marines do, we like lessons beaten to us over and over again and learn the hard way. Pain. I just need pain. Sergeant, I don't understand your lesson. Beat me across the head again so I can get it, right? <laughs> That's it, man. All right. Now let's transition to some of what you're doing with uh, Force Blue. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, such a cool organization. So uh, one of my close, close friends, Rudy Reyes, hit me up God, three, four years ago now. He had just gotten back from a dive in the Caymans. And Rudy had never been on a recreational dive. Um, as you guys know, uh, you know, combat diving is underwater. It's dark. It's murky. Uh, it's still fun. You still got your dive partner there, but you're not really looking at the fishes. You know what I'm saying? Like it's an insert extract platform. 
and you're making sure you're on task, on target, on time. So <laughs> Rudy gets back, calls me, and he is he's a pretty excitable individual anyway. But he calls me and he's just like, like freaking out, like, oh my God. And he's like, he's, I can't even understand him. And I'm like, dude, you, you like, you got to slow down a little bit, man. Like, what, what's going on? Right. And I'm like, you know, he's one of the handful of people, like, whatever needs, wherever I'm hopping on a plane and I'm there. So I'm trying to figure out is something going really well and we're celebrating or is something going really poor? And I'm looking up plane ticket prices. Like, that's kind of what I'm trying to suss through. And then he tells me the story. He's like, I ended up going diving. Uh, a friend of mine took me out there. Uh, it was super cool. But me and these, my buddy and then this guy that runs a resort, we've got this idea. We want to bring this to our guys. He's like, they're big in conservation. We have this idea of bringing a workforce to conservation where it benefits both the marine science world and us as veterans. And we think we can blend this. And I was like, great, that sounds awesome, man. And I'm like in my head, like kind of a dick about it. Like I, I don't see it, right? Like I just don't see it. And I'm like, well, what's the next steps, man? How can I help? Whatever you need. And he's like, well, hey, we're doing a fundraiser. If you make it down, that'd be great. Cool. So I, I booked a ticket, flew out to Texas. And then I, <laughs> I'm like sandwiched between Rudy, who, uh, you know, he's in movies. He's, he's a fitness model. He's like, you know, he's that guy, right? I'm a dude running a gym. Yeah, I read Generation Kill. I saw the movie. Yeah, so that's Rudy. I've met Rudy a couple of times too at Task and Purpose. He works with Chase and them. Yep. He's super high energy all the time, you know? Amazing human being. One of the most genuine, legit human beings I've ever met. I was fortunate enough to work with him for a number of years. Um, you know, he trained up my generation and then we were training partners when we were just doing some stateside contracting stuff. He trained me up when I did my first amateur fight at, and... To this day, if Rudy calls and he needs something, I'm on a plane and, and I'm there. And he's a handful of guys that fall into that category for me. Um, so anyways, I go to this fundraiser, right? And Rudy's talking and, he's, and they're doing like a sizzle reel. Turns out the other co-founder, Jim Ritterhoff, owned like an ad agency uh, in Manhattan. And he's like, he comes from that world, right? Like he's doing like marketing campaigns for Coca-Cola kind of stuff. So we've got like this giant production stuff. I'm still not fully transitioned. I'm a dude running a gym who doesn't want to talk about any of my previous experience. And I don't really tell people what I did. Right. Like that's, that's kind of the life I'm living. If they asked about my tattoo, it's like, uh, you know, used to be in the military, move on. All of a sudden these guys who are way more transitioned than I am at the time are, <laughs> are opening up with these pretty emotional experiences. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with this. Zero chance, zero, zero, zero chance. I'm hopping in front of that camera. And then somebody else came in. He was an old Vietnam era SEAL who like writes scripts in Hollywood and did all that stuff. But he knew that world and he crushed his interview. And we're waiting on one more, which is Roger Sparks, um, who is a legend and just an amazing human being. Uh, retired last year from 28, 29 years in pararescue, uh, but started out as a recon Marine. And he trained up Rudy uh, before Rudy's generation trained up my generation. I, I love the generational stuff. I'm standing here next to Rich, right? And it's just, it's always such a reminder, right? I mean, it's just such a brotherhood. I, I mean, there was stuff that Roger had passed down that I didn't even realize Roger passed down, that we were continuing that tradition because it was passed down to us. And like talking to Roger, you know, hanging out in dive boats over the years, he would mention it. Be like, oh my God, dude. Yeah, we totally took people on water runs. I had no idea you were the one that introduced that over in Okinawa. And, but we carried down the torch and that was me and another guy's job. But anyway, so we're there and Roger was late right? His plane got delayed coming in from Alaska. And they're like, we need one more. We need one more. And they're like looking around the room. And I'm like doing the thing where like, I'm not going to make eye contact. And I'm kind of just going to sit back here and look like a dick because there's no way that I'm, I'm going zero chance. And like the director at the time was kind of an interesting guy. He's like, Oh, what about you? I'm like, no, nah. <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? No, like, no, absolutely not. It's like, uh, okay. And then like Rudy kind of came over the other co-founder, Jim, who I was just getting to know, came over there like, hey, man, I, you know, just say a little bit. And I go to sit in the chair uh, and like the guy was like, you know, filming the thing. He's like, good luck following that act. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a dick move. And my competitive side kicked in. And I was like, all right, let's, let's see what I can give this. Right. As soon as he was like, good luck following that. There was something in my, because he was serious about it. You could tell he wasn't just saying it to say it and like try to get, you know, some response. It's like. All right, fella, 
let's see where this goes. Uh, so ended up giving, I said, whatever I said, I don't even remember. Uh, but it ended up being kind of pretty prominently featured in that. And then they asked me to come on the dive team. And that was probably actually the start of my transition of talking about my experience. That's kind of good luck though. It's, it's sort of how it should work too. Your buddy said, Hey, come to this thing. And you know, you kind of got strength from being there with a buddy. I mean, he's not sitting there holding your hand while you're telling your story or anything, right? I mean, no, you got to do it when you're ready enough, but there, there is value in that of grab a buddy and say, Hey, come, come to this thing. And you know, if, if you show up and you don't talk or you're, you're not ready. I mean, it's not like Rudy's not going to love you. It's just sort of, all right, cool. I got to flank back. Totally. Yeah. So it was, uh, I would say force blue, uh, being able to tie into that mission and everything that came from that, uh, being on our first training deployment in the Caymans, which was awesome. It was out of control. Cool. Uh, there's a great documentary they did on it called Mercy, Love, and Grace. Uh, if anybody out there wants to check it out, just... Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, cool. That experience was the first time that I felt like I was back, right? I didn't really get it in contracting. Not the same way that I had in the Marine Corps. But that team, being on that specific team, on that deployment, with everything they put together was the first time that I was like, I, I'm back on a recon team. Like, And it wasn't all recon guys. It was... You know, it wasn't even all U.S. guys, but it was like it was the same thing, man. It was I, I mean, we were clicking. Everything was right there. It was dialed in. It was fun. It was challenging. Everybody was looking out for each other. I, it was the first time in probably six, seven years uh, that I had felt that since I'd left the Marine Corps. All right. So last question is, what's your what would be your advice to anybody who's kind of transitioning out of the military now? What should they do? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's okay. <laughs> You're going through this emotional roller coaster. We all go through a transition period. I would say find the things you like to do. Number one, you know, you had a great piece of advice in there. Use the GI Bill. I think it's a great thing to give you a little bit of time to actually figure out what you want to do. And I think ultimately you're going to, the way forward is finding the next thing you get excited about that's bigger than you. Because that's where you're able to really pour that same energy that you poured into what we used to do into the next thing. And that's, for most of the guys that I talk to, the transition that ends up occurring that actually allows us to become citizens and, and eventually leaders as citizens versus feeling stuck in what we did. That's awesome. That's good advice. Will, thanks for coming on, my man. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Will has left the digital confines of the garage. What'd you think, Rich? You know, Will said something really interesting to me. He talked about a dog food commercial on TV and it really struck a chord with him emotionally. And I think what, to me, what that boils down to is a loss of innocence. Dogs, animals in general, but dogs in particular, have always represented total loyalty and total innocence. Now, they, they can be real shitheads too. But I mean, for the most part, they represent that innocence. And when you've been to combat, you lose that innocence. And I think that's what a lot of people feel. Because I've been the same route. Uh, I, I don't even remember all the commercials, but I saw a commercial not too long ago that actually brought tears to my eyes. But it was a dog food commercial of all things. <laughs> but it, I, I've thought about it ever since. And I think it's that loss of innocence. And you see this, this dog on there that's just happy as, as hell eating dog food. And it's, you've seen the other side. You also just love dogs. You do serve with them in combat. There is sure. a loyalty that comes from dogs. Will had a transition with the dog, which I can very much relate to as well. And it, it is the age, old, the age old story about once you lose your innocence, you just can't go back. And it, it doesn't mean that you, you regret losing your innocence. It's kind of a natural part of growing up, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that you won't sit and cry when you see something sappy like a dog commercial. Yeah. He's served his country and he made some really, really good points. The one that really struck me was it's not all about money. It's about service. That's been a theme throughout almost every person that we've talked to. It's about service for them providing service to others. 
not to themselves, but to others and to the folks to their right and left. It's not about making money. You might be able to draw a conclusion that a lot of people take money and they say, this is what it's worth. And so that's the value of money. And I think that the common theme that we find here is that there's, there's a disconnect. And yeah. if you chase money and, and try to assign it the value of money on your life, you might end up, might not work for you. You lose the value. You lose the value of your life chasing the wrong thing. And so that's not to say you can just go find anything and serve anything or anybody. And, no. and that's, that's part no. of the, the difficult part in this is you still got to find what you love, as Will, Will mentioned. What do you love to do? And do more of that. And Will has done just that. He's gone through some stages. He's gone through some very successful stages and found that that wasn't feeding his soul. That wasn't taking him where he wanted to go. So he sold it and then moved on to something else that does feed him. Yeah. The, I mean, the money thing is, it's, it's kind of like so easy to focus on. I mean, it's obviously a huge part of our livelihoods. And right now in the middle of coronavirus and COVID, I mean, there's a lot of people out of work and how do you assign value to money? And my basic premise is you figure out how to make a living, the money will, will follow, right? I mean, as much money as you need will follow. You can adjust, you can adjust your lifestyle if you're happy. If you're not happy, you're never going to find enough money. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And so, you know, we, we get a lot of people and a lot of people in our circles who have consistently sacrificed a, a bigger paycheck for something that makes them more fulfilled. I mean, you were just talking the other day. You're like, man, if even now, if I wanted to go contract and push myself a little harder, I could, I could probably, you know, do that for the rest of my days. Yeah. But that isn't going to satisfy me. I've, I've been there, tried that, done that, didn't work. And so it's like, what satisfies me? And, I, and you have to be introspective with this. You have to really look at yourself and you have to go back a long ways and take yourself through all the stages of your life. And I, it, it's easy to say when in two weeks I'm going to be the age that I'm going to be. But Forever 69. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you have to look at yourself throughout and figure out what really satisfies you. What were the, the points in your life that made you the feel the best? What made you feel worthwhile? Yeah, so the, the drug though, the allure is if you say, I closed a million dollar deal and I got a million bucks, that made me feel great. It's kind of like saying, I was on this vacation for two days and uh, it was awesome. It's fleeting though. It's not, it's, it's not just that, that moment. When you close that million dollar deal, stop and look around. Who's standing with you? Who's standing there next to you? And what does it mean to them? Oh, I, never th I never thought about that specific moment yeah. like that. I mean, I, sure. I, I've never had dollars, that moment, first off. Well, but. yeah, me neither. But everybody like to make a million dollars, I guess. But it's more important to look around and see who's standing next to you. Whose ideals have you lived up to? Number one, your own. And number two, those that mean something in your life your loved ones, family, friends, whoever it might be, who's important to you? And are they standing there when you win? Yeah. And if it's, if it's fleeting, if they're not there, it doesn't mean anything. Or if in six months, you know, there's the old adage about if you win the lottery or you get your, your legs blown off in six months, you're going to be the same person you were before that happened. Yep. And so these things don't happen overnight. The, the people that we bring on to chat with here have experiences that I wish we had days to talk to them about it in, in greater depth. But the, the issue is, is that the perspective that Will has, that, that our other guests have, it's forged. It's something where when I was a kid, I just did not really know what they meant when they said, you have to, you have to know yourself. I mean, that was the big philosophical thing, right? Know thyself. No, none of us did when we were that, that age. But Will has gone through a process, and I think it showed through this interview. He's gone through this process and been forged several times. When you forge a blade in a fire, you don't do it one time. You do it multiple times. That's what creates a strong blade. 
all of those fires ultimately lead to the blade itself that you want. Yeah. And and then you know you know what that blade is like everywhere you go. Sure. And you have to tweak a little here and a little there, but you have the perspective. And if if you just keep chasing and chasing and chasing, it's just go watch Wall Street sometime, Gordon Gecko, right? And Charlie Sheen's like, when is it enough? When do you have enough yachts to water ski behind? And it's 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 never enough. And so I pride myself as a hard charger. Like, let's, let's keep going forward. Let's make more of a difference and, and impact more people's lives. And that, that's great. I get a fulfillment out of that. There's just a disconnect when it does turn into numbers for their own sake and how you get there does matter. And so it, it was a good kind of ref, refresher, a different, a different way of saying a lot of things that he brought that I, I thought were really relevant to, to my life as well. Sure. Absolutely. You know, the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Yeah. He That's started talking about all that, all that military stuff. I'm like, well, you know, we have op orders and all of these kinds of things. They, they come up with some weird acronyms in, in the Marine Corps, I guess. Yeah. Similac or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they have some really pretty uniforms. Damn, they do. And some really great commercials about slaying dragons that get them awesome dudes like Will to join up. So Semper Fi, we, we love the Marine Corps. Thank you so much for your time and, and for listening. We'll check in with you next time.